Welcome to The Way Church. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For sermon notes, service times, and more information, check us out online at thewaychurchva.com. Now let's join Pastor Matt Rothy with this week's message. Our sermon lesson this morning comes from the very last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 7. This is God's revelation to the Apostle John, a picture of what heaven would look like. John recorded these visions with these words. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, and people, and language, standing before the throne and the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Is a few years ago, my friend Lucas Flatter and I were taking a program together through the Chamber of Commerce called Leadership Fredericksburg, and I had the opportunity to give a short little talk about leadership, and right as I was about to walk up to do so, my new friend Lucas made a joke about how funny it would be if I started off the speech by defining leadership, and I laughed like, ha funny, and thankfully I wasn't going to do that, but I haven't told him this, but ever since then, I've always been very, very aware of how like cliche that would be to start out a sermon or a speech or anything like that by giving a definition for what we're talking about. And I've never done that, to my knowledge at least, but all that changes today. Okay, so here's what we're doing. We're talking about theology today, and so we're all on the same page. Here's a definition of theology. Theology is the study of faith, practice, and experience, especially the study of God and how God relates to the world, to you. And so if that definition from Merriam-Webster is accurate, that means you, you all, are theologians. I mean, I know that because you study God. You study his word. 
Some of you have sat down and studied God's word with me in our foundations class. Many of you sit down and study God's word with your groups during the week. And even if this is your first time here or you've never been to a group or foundations, I know that you're a theologian because you're here. You're looking at God's word. We're studying what God's word says about how it relates to us. And that makes you a theologian. That makes you someone who has theology. So how is your theology? I mean, practically, functionally. How's your theology working out for you? Let's do this. Let's do a little test with it, okay? An ancient creed, the Apostles' Creed, lays out good, solid, biblical doctrine. People for thousands of years have confessed this theology. It is solid, biblical, confessional theology. Let's compare it with our practical day-to-day, all right? Here's the first article of the Apostles' Creed. It says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. That's good biblical theology. How does that play out for you practically? Or do we worry that God isn't that mighty? Do we not go to our Heavenly Father in prayer because we think, ah, ah, he doesn't care about my problems? Do we, do we think that God, who is the one who has made you, and everything in the world, eh, he can't really control this tough situation I'm dealing with. So we don't go to him. That's functional theology. How, how does it compare to our practical, or our, rather our biblical confessional theology? Let's take the second article of the Apostles' Creed, which deals first person, first one with God, second one, second person of the Trinity, Jesus. I believe in Jesus, his only son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, was buried. He descended into hell. Then the third day he rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And from there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. We confess that. That is biblical. We say we believe that. That's good theology, biblical theology. How does that compare with our street-level practical theology? I mean, think about it. Jesus is God. And God in Christ, I don't know any other way to put this, but engineered the entire plan of salvation to perfection. He brought that out by becoming a baby and then doing what no one else can do, suffering, suffering, dying, even descending into hell to say, hey, devil, you lose. I'm going to crush your head just to fulfill that promise. And then he rose again. And right now, you want to know what he's doing? He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. Doing what? Just kicking up his feet because he did his work? No, 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 no. Ruling everything for your good. That's what we confess with this. But practically, how does that play out? Oh, we think doesn't care. He's too disconnected. He's too disinterested in, in the struggles of this world. Do we say to ourselves, God, you know, if he, if he really knew this evil that is going on in our world or that's going on in my life, that 
he'd step in. He'd do something. Do the stress and the anxieties and the problems we face, do they forget that there is a God who carried out an entire plan to save you and is now ruling all things for you? How is your biblical confessional theology compare to what we're calling our functional day-to-day street-level theology? The truth is that there are times in our lives where there is a massive disconnect between these two things. And perhaps, perhaps one of the greatest areas that we see that is when it comes to our theology or our understanding of eternity. In in the third article of the creed, we say this, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, that my body will, like Christ, rise from the dead and be with him where? Life everlasting. And then we say a hearty amen. Amen, I believe that. We believe that we are made for eternal life, that God has given us as a gift through his son, through faith, eternal life, to be with him forever, that we're going to heaven. He's prepared a mansion for us there. We say these things. But do we live our lives through the lens of life everlasting? Or do we forget? See, what happens when we, when we forget about everlasting life, when we forget about heaven, we lose sight of what's truly important. And when we lose sight of what's truly important in life, we look to, well, find fulfillment or satisfaction in, in things that, that aren't God. And when we find things or pleasure or, or fulfillment in things that are not God and are not connected with the gift that he's given us in eternal life that leaves us not fulfilled, but empty, spiritually empty. And when we're spiritually empty, it leaves us hopeless. Hopeless. Maybe, maybe we look at this world and we say, oh, we despair. This is it. It doesn't get any better than this. This is, this is all there is, hopeless. Or maybe we look at it still with a different version of hopeless and we try to make this world to be heaven, to be awesome, to be something that, that really gives us life and meaning and they can't. And so we're constantly left in despair that it, it doesn't meet expectations. You see the importance of living life through a lens that thinks about life everlasting that God has given you. We confess it, but do we functionally, practically, day-to-day live that out? Very often we don't, so, so what do we do? What should we do? Well, what God's word gives us during this time in between, this time in between where it is so, so easy to be distracted by all that's going on, is he gives us in his word a picture of heaven. Oh, he gives us a good many promises that heaven is for you, that he has in fact gone there to prepare a place for you. 
But here in Revelation, what he gives us is a picture of heaven. He gives us a vision through the Apostle John of this is what it's going to look like. And when you see that, when you see that in your practical, functional, day-to-day theology, oh, it changes the way we live. You might say it changes your, your tune. The reason I say that is because what we're going to look at this morning is three songs, three songs that are being sung in heaven before the throne of God, and we're going to see how they impact our functional, we're going to compare it, our functional practical theology to good biblical theology about what's happening in heaven and what is awaiting you there. Here's the first song that we see sung in heaven in Revelation 7. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. This is God's word so far. We believe this, that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. We believe that that includes everyone. That's good confessional biblical theology. Practically, how does that play out? Oh, perhaps we're not, perhaps we're not guilty of like overt racism, but we have our preferences, right? There's certain people that get on our nerves. There's certain tribes, if you will, that, eh, we don't really see eye to eye. How does that affect our Christian witness, whether we are expressly sharing the gospel or simply living out our faith? We have confessional biblical theology that says, heaven's for all. But practically, How does that play out with who we serve? Who who gets our time? Who gets our attention? The song says that salvation belongs to God. Salvation is not yours. It belongs to God. And in heaven, there's there's a song praising him, sung by all the saints there. You and me, we'll be singing it too. It says, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's biblical theology. But practically, whose song are we singing? Whose, whose praises do we sing regularly? Ah, oh, Pete. Pete's a great dad. Pete's a great husband. Pete works really hard to provide for his family. It's not the song sung in heaven. Ah, oh, Jody loves her kids. Jody's a great mom. Jody's always serving her kids. That's why God loves me. Because I work really hard. Because I'm a great family person. Oh, that's not the song being sung in heaven. What often happens is, is we have this really grand biblical theology that heaven is for all and salvation belongs to God. But practically, it becomes about me, my people preferences, or me, my, my, personal, my personal salvation projects, what makes me good before God. 
And here's what God does in this picture of heaven. He flips that down and he says, everyone, everyone, you can't even count them, is standing in heaven from every nation, every tribe, every nation, every, every, every language before the throne. How did they get there? How did they get there? They're wearing white robes. And who's wearing white robes? It's people who have been covered with the blood of Christ, who has been forgiven by all. And friends, that includes you. Because guess what? Salvation it's God's. It belongs to him. Oftentimes we, we talk about heaven being our true forever home, and we're just foreigners here. That's the way that the Bible speaks about our time here on this earth. The picture that we have here in Revelation 7 is that God has chosen us citizens in his kingdom. You know, often it's really hard. It can be a long, lengthy complex process for someone to get their citizenship status. But you want to know what God did? He took you, plucked us from where we were living, which was not in his kingdom, and he said, I'm going to give you full citizenship. Not only that, I'm going to pay for your flight over here. Not only that, I'm going to pay for your house here. Not only that, I'm not going to ask you to work here or do anything here. I'm going to give it all to you. Because guess what? Salvation belongs to me. It belongs to me. And what does he chose to do? He chose to give it to so many people that no one can count from all sorts of different backgrounds. This is what we confess. This is what we believe. And do we see how this shapes the way we live? Here's, here's our first, first fill-in-the-blank as we're following along. It's this. Practical theology that is heavenly-minded, that is full of thinking of heaven, what it does is it subtracts me from always being on my mind. Because what we see about heaven is that it's not about us, what we did to get there, and it's not about us, about who we think or who we judge to be there, but God has given this gift to all. We put up this C.S. Lewis quote, quote because right now our book club on Tuesdays, short plug here, um, meeting every Tuesday at Highmark at, at 6.30 p.m. You're welcome to come. We're reading this book called Mere Christianity, and in it, C.S. Lewis has a very strong quote about Christians and their thoughts about heaven. Christians who did most for this present world were just those who thought most of the next. We think about our neighbor, from every nation, tribe, and language. We think about those we love in our life, those maybe who are not our preferred people in life. The moving thing about heaven is what it does is it subtracts us from the entire equation about salvation and who gets to be there. And what it does is it puts it all on Christ. And what we see is that he, in love, gave what belongs only to him, salvation. He gave it to us, and now he asks us to just give it away. That's the first idea, that being heavenly-minded, what it does is it just subtracts us from this. And what does it focus us on? Well, here's the second song. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen praise and glory and honor and wisdom and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. We know that those things 
praise and glory and honor and strength. They belong to God. We confess that. We've already, we've already identified that very often we don't live that. We know that God has all wisdom, all strength. And yet when things aren't going according to our wisdom, our plan, we take matters into our own hand. We, we think that it depends on our strength to, to get this or that, and, and we even apply that to our salvation. And what that does is, is in turn takes away from God honor, glory, praise and thanks that, that rightfully belongs to him. And instead of worshiping him as all the saints and all those gathered around the throne in heaven did, well, we just don't not worship him. What we do instead is, is worship something or someone else. David Foster Wallace gave a talk, a, a commencement speech actually, that while he's not a Christian person, really brought out this idea of, of worship very, very well. He said, because here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. And then he goes along the lines to list things that people worship. And he says that pretty much anything you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where your meaning is life, you'll never have enough. If you worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, you'll always feel ugly. And then when you start aging, you'll die a million deaths before you die your actual physical death. If you worship power, you'll end up feeling weak and afraid, and you'll need even more power over others to numb your fear. Of losing power. You worship intellect, and you will want to be always seen as smart, you'll end up feeling foolish and a fraud. And then he says this, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they're unconscious. There are default settings, and the so-called real world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings, because so-called real world hums merrily along in a pool of fear and anger and frustration and craving and worship of self. You compare that and that insidious cycle to what kind of worship we see in heaven. We see worship of God and we see all praise and glory and thanks and honor and power and strength be given to him. And I want you to see, we're gonna look at some passages in just how a mindful of that praise and that glory and that God and all that is to him, how that actually affects our real, right now, functional, day-to-day -day theology. Here, here's our next fill in blank. Practical theology that, heaven, that is heavenly minded, what it does is it, well, first subtracts us, but then it adds God being eternally, that means now and forever, being eternally worshiped in our hearts. Here's what that looks like. Where worshiping ourself and things leads to fear. Here's what having an expectation of hope looks like out of God's glorious wisdom. Paul writes in Philippians, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die 
is gain. Where do you get a heavenly-minded attitude like that, that not only knows who sits on the throne, but practically day-to-day says, life, death? It doesn't matter. Because God, in his wisdom, has given me courage to live through life into eternal life with him. There's no fear in that. There's only courage. And often, we think about worship self and how all of those things that David Foster Wallace laid out led to frustration. There's no frustration here. There's only joy. First Peter, the apostle says, in all this, you greatly rejoice, though for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible, glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Oftentimes, worship in things even unconsciously it leads to frustration, and, we, and we've, we've experienced that in our hearts, in our lives. Here's a perspective. Here's a heavenly-minded perspective that worships a God, a God we haven't even seen, and yet we believe. Why? Because he has shown in Scripture again and again the kind of God he is to us, and he has filled us now with already the end result of our faith. It's the already, but not yet. What do you have? A joy we can't even express as we await life eternal with him. Out of his strength and power, he gives us not anger, not cravings, but peace. Philippians 4, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about everything, anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, a heavenly-minded theology that is biblical and also functional places on our hearts, which are so prone to stress and anxiety, it places a guard, the guard of Christ's peace. One more, Ephesians 3, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and wide and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know that this love surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God." Cravings come when we worship things that cannot fill us up. But when we worship a God who is able to do immeasurably more than we can even imagine, what he does is fill us with inexpressible joy. What he fills us with is sufficient courage. What he fills us with is peace that guards our hearts. He fills us with the fullness of God. Friends, what a practical, functional, day-to-day theology that is heavenly-minded does is it first takes us away Second, it adds God being worshiped in our hearts. And third, does one more. It multiplies hope. One of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? 
I answered, sir, you know. And he said, they are those who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. They are before the Lord, the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not be down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is God's word. A biblical confessional theology that knows about life everlasting, but does not translate into our functional day-to-day theology only means that we lose sight of what's really important. We said it before, when we lose sight of what's really important, then we start looking for significance and satisfaction in things that just aren't God. And when we do that, we will fill ourselves up on things that cannot fulfill us, can't fill us spiritually. We end up empty spiritually. And when we're empty spiritually, then we lose hope. We lose hope that God can help us in our, well, as Revelation said, tribulation. Tough times during this time in between. But I want to give you two pictures from this beautiful ending to Revelation 7 and the picture there as we put on a practical theology that multiplies hope in literally every aspect of our lives. The first is this. It is of Christ being a tent. Revelation 7, 15 says this. There before the throne of God, they are, and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. The picture is simply of a tent, that Jesus just sets up himself as a tent over all his people to protect them from whatever trials and tribulations and troubles come their way. We think, well, I can't see this. I can't feel this. I don't know this now. Friends, you have seen this. This this same word that's used here is exactly how John chapter 1 described Christ coming into the world. He said, the word became flesh And he tented. He made his dwelling, his shelter among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. You think, man, I haven't seen it. This is in heaven. I don't experience this now. Here is what heavenly mindedness does to us. It multiplies the hope that we have in our lives because you have seen Christ. You have seen his glory revealed to you on scripture, revealed to you in his death and resurrection. And now what is he doing? sitting on the throne, arms stretch over you, sheltering us. One more picture. Revelation 7 shows us a lamb at the center of the throne who is your shepherd. You got that picture in mind? A lamb on a throne who's a shepherd. Because I looked for an artist's rendition or a rendering of this picture, and I, I couldn't find one. Because how do you portray a lamb who is also a shepherd and yet is also a king? It doesn't make sense. That the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is at the very same time the shepherd who is your king. It doesn't, these are competing analogies. It doesn't make sense outside of Christ who is all of these at once 
He is the lamb who took away our sins with his spotless life. He is at the same time our shepherd who leads us beside still waters. He is our king who is on the throne working everything out for us. You put this picture in your mind and it starts to allow, well, what we read in the Beatitudes to make sense, that, that even though we're poor, we have the riches and the kingdom of God, even though at times we feel persecuted and trouble and hated for loving Christ, that he said, this is good and this is expected and this is, this is to be commended to you, it is because there is a lamb on the throne who is your shepherd. Earlier, we define theology as this, as a study, as a study of God things. And that's good. That's a good definition. It helps us understand that we're theologians and theology matters, but it's not complete because it's not just about the study and the acquiring of knowledge that, that real theology is about. Truthfully, biblical confessional theology and our functional day-to-day theology, they are one because theology is something that is active, Abraham Kalov, a Lutheran theologian from the 1600s, defined theology in this way. He said, the broadest classification is an aptitude. it's, it's, It's the ability to study and know things. But we can get more specific. The narrow classification is a practical aptitude because the aim of the theologian and theology is not bare knowledge, studying and knowing things, but an activity. What is that activity? It's namely leading you and I to salvation. That is what our our God gives us in his word, in the Bible. That is what we confess, and friends, that is what we functionally live out every single day. That is what a celebration of All Saints Sunday means for us. It's a celebration of those who are in heaven, who are there around the throne singing praises to God. But it's not really about the people who are there It's about the promises that they have held on to. We start out our worship services with words of forgiveness, words of acknowledgement of our sinfulness. But have you ever thought about this? What if if we had a confession of saintedness, a confession that acknowledged really and truly who we are, a confession that acknowledged our our biblical confessional theology and paired it with our day-to-day street-level functional theology? Normally, we end with a prayer. Here's what I want to ask you to do. Please stand, and together, let's confess our faith. And this morning, we're going to use that same Apostles' Creed, and we're going to confess our faith in our saintedness, in all that Christ has given to us. I want to invite you to join me and read the bolded words, the explanation to the Apostles' Creed. The first article of the Apostles' Creed says this, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. What does this mean? I believe that God has made me and all creatures, that he has given me my body and soul, eyes and ears and all my members, my reason and all my senses, and still preserves them, that he richly and daily provides me with food and clothing, home and family, property and goods, and all that I need to support this body and life, that he protects me from all danger, guards and keeps me from all evil, and all this purely out of his fatherly divine goodness and mercy, without any merit or worthiness in me, for all which I am in duty bound to thank and praise, to serve and obey him, this is most certainly true. 
The second article says, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. What does this mean? I believe that Jesus Christ is true God begotten of the Father from eternity, and also true man, born of the Virgin Mary, and that he is my Lord, who has redeemed me as lost and condemned creature, purchased and won me from all sins, from death and from the power of the devil, not with gold or silver, but with his holy precious blood and with his innocent suffering and death, in order that I might be his own, live under him in his kingdom, and serve him in everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness, even as he is risen from the dead, lives and reigns to all eternity. This is most certainly true. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. What does this mean? I believe that I cannot, by my own reason or strength, believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him. But the Holy Ghost has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gift, sanctified and kept me in the true faith, just as he calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies the whole Christian church on earth and keeps it with Jesus Christ in the one true faith. In this Christian church, he daily and richly forgives me and all believers all our sins. And at the last day, he will raise up me and all the dead and will grant me and all believers in Christ eternal life. This is most certainly true. Amen.